This is the culmination of more than a year of day and night efforts on the part of our physicians, our scientists, our engineers to have a safe, effective, single shot, common refrigeration vaccine available. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. And that's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it actually isn't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, 98.7 in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego, 99.5 FM in Ridgecrest and China Lake. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN and Eureka's KGOE. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's Queso, Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN. In Palinville, New York on WLPP, Rochester, New York's WRFZ. Down in New Orleans on WHIV, out in Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950 KTNF. And yes, we stream coast-to-coast every day around the globe before your listening convenience on the Internet. It's on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com. Hi, Nikki. Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, No Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today, and welcome to the Bradcast. It is good-ish to be back, and our huge thanks to Nicole Sandler for filling in for us to allow... Desi Doyen, a very rare day off for her birthday. An actual day off for my birthday. I haven't had that in years. I know. I was going to say, when was the last time (laughs) that happened? Yeah. I haven't even looked because it's too terrifying. Yeah. (laughs) And and it's a lot of years to look back at in your case. Uh, in the meantime, so uh, happy birthday. Thanks. Sorry you're back. <laughs> uh, sorry, we're back. Anyway, in the meantime, uh, it was another uh, busy news weekend for a change, so we have a lot to try to get caught up with today uh, with a lot of sort of good news, bad news stories, uh, including with my guest coming up momentarily. So you may just wish to listen to half of the show for the good news. <laughs> How you'll figure out which one is which, uh, that'll good be luck. up to you. Yeah, But hey, let's start with um, with one of those good news, bad news stories here. Here's some good news to kick off the week. The former president has been found guilty of corruption and influence peddling by a court and sentenced to a year in prison. That's the good news. The bad news, of course, as you may have guessed, it's the former French president, Nicolas Sarkozy, not our former president, though it does prove that modern presidents in developed countries, yes, can be held at least somewhat accountable for their crimes by a court of law. 
Whether a court of law in the U.S. will be able to do the same, that remains to be seen. But the 66-year-old Sarkozy, who was France's president for five years from 2007 to 2012, was convicted of trying to bribe a magistrate in exchange for information about a legal case in which he was implicated. He will remain free while he appeals, but it was a blow to the retired politician who still plays an influential role in French conservative politics. Wow, a corrupt conservative president at that, Hmm. in case all of this is starting to sound a little bit familiar to you. It's also not the end of his legal troubles either, as AP notes. Sarkozy faces another trial later this month and is also under investigation in a third case. Just in case this is starting to sound very familiar. Uh, Though, again, in an encouraging way, I might add, the uh, court said that the case was, quote, particularly serious given that the acts were committed by a former president for his personal gain. And that as a lawyer by training, aha, that's how that's how Trump can get out of this. He's not a lawyer. He had no idea he was breaking laws left and right, even though people were telling him. Uh, but as a lawyer, uh, Sarkozy was, quote, perfectly aware that what he was doing was illegal. According to the court, the ruling marks the first time in France's modern history that a former president has been convicted of corruption and given a prison term. His predecessor, Jacques Chirac, was found guilty in 2011 of misuse of public money during his time as Paris mayor, uh, which was not considered a corruption offense, and he was given a two-year suspended prison sentence. The court said that Sarkozy is entitled to ask to be detained at home with an electronic bracelet, as is the case for any sentence of two years or less at least in France. He also received a two-year suspended sentence, which he will not have to serve if he commits no new offenses in the next five years. But hey, the sixth year is right out. That's right. (laughs) It's party time. Sarkozy's co-defendants included his lawyer and longtime friend, Rudy Giuliani, oh, I'm sorry, Terry Herzog, uh, and a uh, magistrate, Brett Cavan. No, no, I'm sorry again. Uh, <laughs> Gilbert Azebert, uh, who were also found guilty and given the same sentence as the politician. There's actually a whole lot in this that sounds a whole lot like Donald Trump, to be frank, uh, including uh, some of these other cases they may that uh, Sarkozy may be facing uh, regarding his uh, 2012 presidential campaign. Um, when his conservative party and a uh, private company are accused of using a special invoice system to conceal allegedly spending more than $50 million, which is almost twice the uh, allowable maximum, and another investigation uh, from 2013 in which Sarkozy is accused of having taken millions of dollars from then-Libyan dictator Muammar Gaddafi to illegally finance his successful 2007 campaign. In both of those cases, he has also denied wrongdoing. In another good news, bad news uh, story today, well, good news, temperatures as well as water and power have been returned to most of storm-battered Texas. 
But the bad news, uh, about 390,000 Texans are still under boil water advisories as of midday on Monday, almost two weeks after winter storms slammed large swaths of the south. The winter weather that hit Texas paralyzed cities, snarled up roads and wreaked havoc on infrastructure and utility systems from Oregon to Mississippi. At least 80 people died across 11 states uh, in the weather-related issues. I would say the climate-related issues. Uh, Anyway, that's according to the count by CNN. At least 47 of those deaths have been reported in Texas, where the state's deregulation and privatization of the electric grid in 1999 under then-Governor George W. Bush and his pal and campaign benefactor Ken Lay of Enron Uh, He was able to pull off a similar swindle in uh, California, leading to blackouts and absurdly large spikes in pricing back in um, 2000, 2001, when the power grid was artificially manipulated by Enron in this huge scandal at the time that ended up putting them out of business and putting Ken Lay into an early grave. This time it wasn't artificial manipulation, at least as far as we know, but uh, in allowing private companies in Texas to decide if they wanted to spend their profits on winterizing their systems rather than... In in other words, they did it on purpose. Well, they did it. They chose to not do what they should have done that would have, you know, been best for the actual customers, otherwise known as residents of Texas. And yet the uh, Texas Republicans that run the state did not want to mandate that the companies had to do that. They would prefer to um, take their chances and, you know, wait for a bunch of them to die, as happened in this case. Uh, On Friday, uh, Ernie Canning wrote at Bradblog.com about the price that Texans have now paid for their Enron-like deregulation, comparing the swindle in California with what just happened in Texas. You might want to check that out at Bradblog.com. Even though the power is on and the water pressure is now normalized, according to Houston Mayor Sylvester Turner, in a press release on Sunday, there are still thousands of homes and apartments that have been affected because of busted pipes that froze during the cold snap because there, yes, is no mandate to winterize those either. Those residents, said Mayor Turner, still do not have water. More than 3,000 vehicles with about 10,000 people in them showed up to a distribution event held by the city to receive cases of water and meal kits to last four days and other relief items, according to the press release. Although the water distribution event over the weekend provides meals and bottled water, daily life for many is still impacted by a lack of usable water for cleaning and bathing. That's if their pipes are working. And uh, with the broken pipes, by the way, all over the state, it is not just uh, Houston. Uh, it is very difficult to you know, go to another state to get pipes to fix something that happened, or go to another city to fix, you know, pipes that broke in Houston, for example. Without water, many people in Dallas have also gone weeks without being able to do their laundry, according to KTVT. And fortunate, unfortunately, it is not just in Texas. Residents in Jackson, Mississippi, are still under a boil water alert themselves. Some residents do not have running water at all. 
after the back-to-back winter storms last month wreaked havoc on the city's water system. Significant progress was made reportedly on Sunday in Jackson to restore pressure to the system, and water for flushing toilets was restored on Monday. Some residents had been collecting snow to use in order to flush their toilets. Uh, But the city's water system apparently has no timetable on when a full restoration will be complete, according to ABC's Jackson affiliate WAPT. Water was previously expected to be fully restored by the end of last week, according to the city's director of public works. On Wednesday of last week, Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves dispatched the National Guard and more tanker trucks to Jackson to aid in the water crisis. But many residents in the city do not have the means to just go and get bottled water from somewhere or even go to a distribution center to fill up their own containers. Jackson resident Terry Hall told WAPT that water had only been dripping from her faucet and that what little comes out is mixed with sediment. She has now been without water for 10 days. She says we can't bathe in this because if there's microbes in the water, they can enter your mouth, eyes, and nose. She's correct. Yes, she is. And can't wash dishes because you don't want to ingest it that way, she said. Jackson resident Taylor Corso said the time is extensive here and so widespread, referring to the fact that They've had water problems in the past, but they've been solved in, you know, just a couple of days. She said, I mean, tens of thousands of residents here are without any water. Jackson, which has lost over 10 percent of its population since 2000, according to the Daily Beast, water problems are nothing new. Six years ago, the city approved a 1% sales tax increase with the goal of updating all of its aging infrastructure, but the $15 million that it generates annually is a fraction of the $2 billion that the uh, mayor, Chakwa Lumumba, says the city will now need. Long before the current crisis hit, one popular local T-shirt read, quote, Welcome to Boil Water Alert, Mississippi. So what is different this time, uh, however, is the sheer scale. The entire city is now without water or under a boil water notice. Texas was getting the most publicity because of the massive scale of the statewide failure there. But that means that it's only now that national news is even beginning to notice the crippling problems in places like Jackson. But there's also another reason that media may have been slow to notice. More than a few residents have noted that the crisis there has hit South and West Jackson the hardest, leaving Northeast Jackson the one predominantly white corner of this 80 percent black capital city relatively unscathed. Over the past several days, Lori Bertram Roberts, who runs the Mississippi Reproductive Freedom Fund, has used Funds to distribute more than 130 cases of water to residents with plans to deliver more in the days ahead. She said, usually when we have an outage, it's one neighborhood. So people are used to running over to a friend's house or their auntie's house to take a shower or fill up some jugs. Usually you can grab buckets and find some place to fill them. But when it's the whole damn city, where are the black people supposed to go? She says, it's not like this is everywhere. It's where the mostly black population in Jackson lives. 
In a statement to Daily Beast, Mayor Lumumba said the challenges of aging infrastructure are not new to Jackson, but this is different. This was an act of God that sent old systems into havoc, resulting in severe water outages and trauma for our residents. Our systems, he said, were never meant to endure days of ice storms and sub-zero temperatures coupled by road conditions that prevented the delivery of critical supplies. He said, it's been a difficult few weeks. Our recovery efforts continue. We are not there yet, but we're doing everything we can to restore water to Jackson residents. Mississippi's governor, Republican Governor Reeves, uh, seems to agree with the Democratic mayor of Jackson, saying earlier in the week that uh, Jackson's water system problems date back to 50 years of negligence and ignoring the challenges of the pipes and the system. That's 50 years, he said, of deferred maintenance. It's not something we're going to fix in the next six to eight hours, he said. It is, however, something that could be fixed with the influx of funding for states and cities that Democrats are attempting to include in their wildly popular COVID relief bill, which has a ridiculous 76% approval rating in recent polling, including more than 60% of Republicans. But in Congress, there is so far 0% support from Republicans, who apparently have no concerns whatsoever about what their constituents actually have to say about any of this, I guess. The House on Saturday passed Joe Biden's $1.9 trillion stimulus plan, advancing the pandemic package that would provide billions of dollars in relief to help financially strapped families and businesses and, yes, cities and states. It would support schools and bolster COVID-19 vaccine distribution. Democrats pushed past unanimous Republican opposition in the House in a 219 to 212 vote. All but two Democrats, and if you're wondering who they are, it's Congressman Kurt Schrader of Oregon and Jared Golden of Maine. Uh, they were the only Democrats to vote with all of the Republicans, but that was enough to pass the legislation uh, by Democrats with uh, seven votes to spare. The passage of the bill in the House came after the Senate parliamentarian ruled that the $15 minimum wage could not proceed under reconciliation rules that allow for a simple majority to adopt this bill rather than having to overcome the undemocratic Jim Crow era filibuster. Though House Democrats included the hike to the minimum wage in the package that they approved anyway uh, before sending it to the Senate, the minimum wage increase is also, by the way, wildly popular, yes, with Republican voters, if not their elected officials. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi pledged on Friday that even if the Senate tosses the proposed increase, the House will get it done in another way, although it seems unlikely that a standalone bill to raise the minimum wage is going to attract the 60 Senate votes needed to overcome a filibuster unless Republicans suddenly begin giving a damn about what their constituents actually want. The uh, relief bill that did pass the House will provide $1,400 stimulus payments to individuals earning up to $75,000 a year. That is thanks to the Progressive Caucus, who fought and won, at least so far, to keep that means test from being lowered. The bill also would provide $350 billion in aid 
to hard-hit states and cities and U.S. territories and tribal governments. So, yes, maybe Jackson, Mississippi could use some of that money to start fixing its water woes. The uh, package would also increase funding for vaccine distribution and coronavirus testing, among other measures. Well, no wonder Republicans oppose it. Democrats hope to get the uh, bill through the Senate and signed into law by March 14 to beat the expiration of enhanced unemployment benefits. Republicans have repeatedly decried the legislation as partisan and divisive despite its wild popularity with their own constituents. Yes, their own Republican constituents, along with Democrats. If Senate Republicans remain opposed, Democrats can pass the legislation only if they stay united. And Vice President Kamala Harris breaks the tie. Senate Democrats are now carefully considering alternatives to the minimum wage increase that might include a tax hike on large companies if they choose to refuse to meet a $15 hourly minimum for their workers. That, apparently, in our ridiculous, undemocratic system, may meet muster from the Senate parliamentarian. Uh, to be included in the budget reconciliation bill, but we don't know yet. Two Democrats uh, told uh, Democratic aides told The Washington Post that Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer was weighing the potential provision that has been proposed by Senator Ron Wyden, Democrat from Oregon. He chairs the Finance Committee. Senate announced today that it will vote this week now on the $1.9 trillion package. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said that he expects a hearty debate and some very late nights, but that the American people sent us here with a job to do, he said, to help the country through this moment of extraordinary challenge. The Senate is expected to make changes to the bill, however, including stripping out that language for the minimum wage, $15 per hour minimum wage. The Senate will also have to go through a marathon voting session known as Votorama, where any senator who wants to force an amendment is allowed to do so. Senators are mulling potential changes to the bill, including changes to that phase-out structure of the uh, third round of stimulus checks, the hard-won um, provision in the by the Progressive Caucus in the House. So we will see what remains after the Senate gets done chewing through it. Schumer can defeat GOP amendments, but it will require all 50 members of the Democratic caucus to stick together. He'll also need every member of the Democratic caucus to pass the bill with no Republicans, zero, expected to vote for it, which, of course, makes Senators Joe Manchin of West Virginia and Kirsten Sinema of Arizona the most powerful members of the U.S. Senate at this moment. Because the Senate is going to make some changes, that means the bill will then need to be passed again by the House a second time before it's sent to President Biden's desk. And it all must be done by March 14 in order to kick in before the federal unemployment benefits expire again, as they did before the December relief bill that Donald Trump waited days to sign, perhaps specifically so that unemployment benefits would run out. Anyway, uh, there is good reason to move this uh, bill quickly forward at this point, separate from the unemployment benefits. And yes, Senator Sinema, the lives of your constituents may hang in the bargain as epidemiologists are now trying to outrun the virus with vaccine. Good news 
and bad news on that front as well as we head back to Arizona ourselves after a quick break to speak with an epidemiologist there on the good news and bad news about the new vaccine from Johnson & Johnson, which is, as even as we speak, heading to a town near you. That's straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. I got this feeling that it's later than it seems. Yes, it is. Doctor, my eyes tell me what you see. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Thanks to Randall B. for suggesting that uh, bumper music there. Good news. As Americans have seen over the past week or two, COVID-19 infection, hospitalization and death rates have all been falling fairly precipitously in recent weeks, even if the rate is still incredibly high in the U.S., matching just about where we were last summer before the autumn and winter bumps skyrocketed all of those numbers. But the bad news as much as I'd rather cling to the good news, is that according to the L.A. Times, federal officials are expressing worry that the decline in daily new coronavirus cases nationwide is starting to flatten as one of the variants from the U.K. is now on the rise. They have warned states against relaxing COVID-19 restrictions, saying the nation remains at a precarious point that could tip into a fourth surge before more people get vaccinated. Dr. Anthony Fauci, President Biden's chief medical advisor on the pandemic, told reporters at a briefing on Friday, quote, we are at that very precarious position that we were right before the fall surge, where anything that could perturb that could give us another surge. He added, we don't want to be people always looking at the dark side of things, but you want to be realistic. So we have to carefully look at what happens over the next week or so with those numbers before you start making the understandable need to relax on certain restrictions. Andy Slavitt, a senior advisor to the White House COVID-19 response team, said, quote, we couldn't say it in stronger terms. We think it is a mistake to take our foot off the gas too early, especially when we are accelerating our vaccination efforts right now. Uh, mixed metaphors aside there, since early January, daily new coronavirus cases and COVID-19 hospitalizations have been dropping, but the latest data suggests that these declines may now be stalling, potentially leveling off at a still very high number, said Rochelle Walensky, the new director of the CDC. We at CDC, she said, consider this a very concerning shift in the trajectory. So that's a bit of a roller coaster. 
And that's before we get back to some good news again today. At least I think it's good news, though I do have some questions for my guest about this. Following final emergency authorization approval by the FDA over the weekend, Johnson & Johnson's COVID-19 vaccine began shipping 4 million doses out Monday morning. And Americans uh, should begin getting the single-dose shot within the next day or two, according to the company's CEO, Alex Gorski, this morning on NBC's Today Show. They're literally rolling out with the trucks as we speak. And uh, and again, this is, this is the culmination of more than a year of day and night efforts on the part of our physicians, our scientists, our engineers to have a safe, effective, single shot, common refrigeration vaccine available for, for patients here, but for people around the world. Gorski added that within the next 24 to 48 hours, Americans should start receiving shots in arms. He added that 100 million shots should be distributed by June and a billion by the end of the year. And a billion doses means a billion vaccinated people since the Johnson Johnson vaccine is given in just one single dose. The other available vaccines in the U.S. from Pfizer and Moderna are given as two doses each three to four weeks apart. The J&J vaccine, while only requiring one dose, is also the easiest to store as it can be kept in a refrigerator instead of a freezer, meaning that it can be made available at more locations, as I understand it. That said, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is said to be 66% effective overall compared with 94 or 95% effectiveness with the Pfizer and Moderna shots. Johnson & Johnson claims, however, that the shots work 85% of the time against severe disease and it is 100% effective, they say, in preventing hospitalization and death, at least to date. Moreover, they note, clinical trials were performed when cases were at their peak and some were conducted in South Africa and Brazil, where dangerous variants have been spreading. On Sunday, Dr. Fauci asserted that the country now has, quote, three highly efficacious vaccines that provide significant protection from COVID-19, urging Americans to take whichever one is available to them when they become eligible. And though the Johnson Johnson vaccine will be given as a single dose, the company is now said to be studying the impact of a second dose as well. Joining us now for some insight and hopefully clarity on a number of these somewhat, uh, if not mixed, then confusing messages is Dr. Carl Krupp, a postdoctoral research associate in the Health Promotion Sciences Department at the University of Arizona's Zuckerman College of Public Health. Dr. Krupp, thank you for joining us today on the broadcast, sir. Hi, Brad. Thanks for having me on. I, I want to get your thoughts and, and concerns about what would seem like good news, the falling infection and death rates, et cetera, and the warnings that we're now hearing around them. But let me jump to the new uh, Johnson & Johnson vaccine first. In plain language, uh, doctor, the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are said to be 94 or 95% effective, while the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, while easier to distribute and only requiring a single shot, is only 66% effective, though it does greatly appear to decrease the odds of severe disease or hospitalization. But to be frank, if given a choice, 
I want that 95% effective vaccine. Uh, and uh, now I'm still too young to get it here right now in L.A. at the moment. Am I wrong to say uh, that I want what seems to be the better vaccine? Um, I, I think so. So a couple of couple of things are important to point out here. Um, first of all, this is a completely different vaccine platform. It's an adenovirus. So, uh, you know, and the other thing is that the, um, the research that's been done really didn't compare all of the vaccines head to head. So it's important that we know this. I, I think what's going to happen here um, is basically there are going to be a lot of people that will not have access to any vaccine that this vaccine will will be available to and i i think that's the really important thing here um i i really would advise people to take whatever vaccine uh they're offered you know on mm-hmm. on the other hand you know there's over a hundred thousand or a hundred million excuse me americans who actually lack good access to even pharmacies Mm-hmm. Um, so that means they don't have the kind of cold chain that you need for a Pfizer or Moderna vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, this makes this uh, the first vaccine that's really going to get into general distribution. So um, the other thing I'd like to point out, if we were talking about a flu vaccine, this would be spectacular. If we were talking about practically any other vaccine of this type, this uh you know, rate of efficacy is extremely high. Um, so it's it's only in relation to the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines that are on this new mRNA platform mm-hmm. that we're all comparing and saying, well, this isn't that good a vaccine. It's actually a spectacular vaccine um, that's been shown to be safe. And I, I would recommend it to anybody. And, I, you know, and I hear you on that. And I know that, you know, I take my flu vaccine every year. I have never bothered to ask which brand I am getting, how effective it is or isn't. But there's been so much information about all of this. Uh, you know, I suspect looking at this, I'm not the only one sort of thinking this way. Oh, I want the 95 percent vaccine. That's better. Is there a concern that uh, patients will be, you know, jerks like me and insist on one uh, of the other seemingly more effective vaccines instead of the single dose J&J shot? And if so, how, how will this be handled by uh, medical professionals? Well, I think what you're going to see is you're going to see probably availability of, of only one vaccine at different locations. Here in Arizona, um, we have several very large pods that are run by the university, and the Pfizer is available at one and the Moderna is available at the other. And I have to say, you know, uh, Moderna is a half a point less. It's 94.5% efficacy. Mm-hmm. And we have had people say, I want to go to the other pod because I want that Pfizer vaccine. <laughs> right. um, so so I, I, I do think it's going to be a concern that a lot of people have, but I would hope that they don't, uh, that they don't delay vaccination. I think that's the big, you know, the big message here um, that, it's very important now with the variants really, um, you know, taking over in terms of, you know, the the ecology of the infection right now in a lot of states that people get vaccinated. They really need protection against some of these variants, which are not only more transmissible, but they're more deadly. So, so the, the idea of putting off a vaccine is, is 
actually not not a good idea if you can't get another of the vaccines that you'd prefer. Okay, well, I think that was actually, I think you've answered my next question because I was going to say once these all become available, um, is it you know smarter to wait for the Pfizer or the Moderna shots to see if I can get one of those versus getting the Johnson & Johnson shot immediately uh, if it happens to be available to me sooner? Sounds like your answer is no, I should get the Johnson & Johnson shot, whatever I can get at first. Yes. I mean, I think there'll be more than enough time to go back and get another vaccine if you want to. I, I honestly believe this. And, and I'm a little bit more selective than you. I do call the you know, the, the CVS or Walgreens and say, you know, what are you offering in terms right. of, of flu vaccines? So uh, I'm a little, uh, I'm, I'm selective. Okay. And, and I think there's going to be an opportunity for that. There isn't, this is not the time for that. Gotcha. Um, it is not the time to shop around. It's the time to get a vaccination as quickly as you can, get it into your arm and, and be much safer. And, in this particular environment. And and you say I could, uh, there would be time later to get a Pfizer. So even if I get Johnson & Johnson, you're saying later on I could also get the Pfizer down the road? I think so. And, and I, I I suspect, and we, we don't have the long-term efficacy numbers yet, but that this is going to become more of a, a seasonal choice that mm -hmm. we make. Um, so I am sure that at some point you're going to call up your CVS and you're going to say, do you have the coronavirus vaccine in? What do you have? And you're probably going to be able to to make a choice. Mm. This isn't the time when you probably can make that choice. Um, in, in Arizona, for instance, and I think nationwide, really, nobody's really, you know, some, some states have gone a little bit beyond this, but, you know, 7 or 8% of the of the people have been vaccinated, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So that, that leaves 92% that don't have a vaccine in their arm. Yep. And of course it's for now an academic question for me, cause I can't get any of them. Uh, Dr. Right. Uh, Carl Krupp, we, we spoke last year on this show with your excellent colleague, Dr. Pranima Marivanen, who was, uh, I believe it was last June, um, looking at the early rising infection rates in Phoenix at the time, she was calling it a crisis. It was very early on, and she told me that uh, if your governor, the uh, very Trumpy Doug Ducey, was uh, smart at the time, he would, quote, close off the borders to Phoenix yesterday, she said. Needless to say... Uh, he did not do that. And in fact, Arizona was one of the first to start reopening businesses after the spring and summer surge, as I recall, in advance of the horrific um, autumn and winter surge last year. Where is uh, Phoenix and Arizona right now overall? I know you're down in Tucson on, on the curve as compared to June of last year when she said it's time to close off the borders. Um and what is different now versus then as far as, you know, businesses and schools being reopened and, and you know, what might all of this mean, I guess, for the fourth for potential fourth surge this summer? Yeah, well, I have to agree with uh, with Dr. Madhavan and then and as well as now. And I, I think Dr. Walensky and, you know, from the CDC and Dr. Fauci. Um, really are they're all on the same page which is which is kind of a you know uh, a great thing because at the time you you spoke to her mm -hmm. there were still a whole lot of mis, you know mixed messages about mm -hmm. this so so that's been important but I would say um, 
it, it's kind of worthwhile to go back in our minds to what happened, say, around July of 2020. Um, basically, the the infection rates had been trending lower, just like they are now, mm-hmm. and everybody was happy because we were off that high, and, and we got down to a pretty low level in the 500 or so a day range, and the state opened up bars, restaurants, gyms, and and they did it on a, I mean, thankfully, they didn't do it on a, on the basis of just letting them open their doors. Um, they basically went county by county, and they said, when you get down to this rate, which they called a moderate rate, uh, they allowed them to open up at about 50% capacity. Well, that all happened in the state. All of them reached, all of the counties reached that level by October. Mm-hmm. Okay, and they all opened up, and you've seen what happened. Yeah. Okay, from that day till January. Mm-hmm. The, the, you know, the trajectory was incredible. Okay, it started going up, and it just never stopped until it reached this just incredible level in, in January. So, so I think that if we're foolish, okay, that's exactly what we're going to do again. Oh, um, and we are nothing if not foolish, uh, doctor. I mean, look, <laughs> looking at the you know the various states, the patterns actually now seem fairly uh, close to each other. With this you know precipitous fall coming now in in uh, cases and hospitalizations and deaths in recent weeks, but the LA Times reported over the weekend, the nation had an average of about sixty six thousand three hundred and fifty new daily cases a day. Over the past week, according to the CDC, um, and that uh, actually that was uh, higher than the figure that was released just two days earlier uh, by, uh, I don't know, about twenty five hundred. And so that could, of course, be just a blip, I guess, a blip, a bit of noise, if you will, in the data. Um, but cases, hospitalization, uh, hospital uh, admissions and deaths all remain very high. And the recent shift in the pandemic towards some of these more transmissible variants, including here in California and New York, must be watched closely, according to the paper. And yet the paper notes that New York City began to permit indoor restaurant dining at 25 percent capacity in mid-February. Massachusetts today lifts its capacity limits on restaurants and will allow indoor concert halls and theaters to reopen at 50 percent. Are we simply screwing this up all over again? Or can the vaccines sometime uh, somehow make a a difference this time to counter our apparent stupidity? I I think we're screwing it up all over again, to be quite, quite blunt about it. Um, Yet when you when you think about this, the, the UK variant, which is the one we face here in Arizona and that you have faced in, in California, mm-hmm. is 50 to 75 percent more transmissible. Um, so I think we have, what we have seen was what the public health um, authorities warned us about, um, you know, right before Thanksgiving, that this was going to be a really dark fall and winter. And and we all we all said no no they're being too dark, um, and you know it's funny how short a memory we have, but it was it was really that Thanksgiving that started things off, mm-hmm. and then Christmas and the travel patterns that we saw over 
over the Christmas and New Year break. That's what, what you know, contributed to this huge mountain of cases that we got over the end of the year. Now we're just approaching where we were somewhere in the middle of October. Mm-hmm. So we're just coming back from where we went the first time we did everything wrong. And the question yeah. is, are we going to do everything wrong this time? Now, I I think it's it's you know it makes us all feel good that they've got the three vaccines and that they're starting to get them out. But when you look at it, like I said, in in Arizona, only about seven percent of the people have been vaccinated. Mm-hmm. There isn't any chance that that's going to contribute to lower rates mm. of transmission. And if we look across the whole country. It's very similar in most states. Unfortunately, what we see is the people that they're vaccinating are not the high-risk people. And that's the other issue that we have to deal with now. Uh, the, the minority groups, okay, mm-hmm. the black African-American community, the Hispanic community are the ones that have been really hard hit by, their, by the pandemic, and they are getting vaccinated at... Much, at proportionally much lower rates mm. than than the white middle class and upper class um, population, mm. and that that population, to be honest with you, isn't at the highest risk for COVID. Mm. So we we have kind of got our priorities wrong, and I think what you're going to see is I I think we're on our way to a to another you know peak that we haven't seen before that could be as bad or worse than the the last one we saw. Really? Wow. Because I was, you know, uh, I, I'm, I was wondering what you attribute the precipitous decline, uh, you know, in numbers that we've seen over the past month or so to what you attribute that. Because I, I have I have an absolutely no real data to back me up theory on this, that uh, a lot of the spike last year could be attributed to politics and even more specifically to the fact that our then president was holding largely mask free super spreader campaign rallies all over the country at a time when those were the only such large gatherings in the country, uh, you know, with folks coming from all over to attend and then taking the virus back with them to their own towns like a MAGA souvenir. Am I thinking too narrowly here? Because it seems like since that has stopped, that's also coincides with the rates coming down. Well, we, you know, we had, I agree with you 100% that that certainly contributed to the spread of of the um, COVID-19 pandemic. But this is a an incredibly trans- transmissible virus that, given a chance, will jump from one person to another to another to another. And, and the rates, you know, really are geometric. They just go up at such, you know, such a fast uh, pace. Um, and I, and I think that contributed to it. Another thing that I think contributed to it is that we had so much mixed messaging that people didn't know where to, you know, whether to wear masks or not wear masks. They didn't know if, you know, uh, whether to have house parties. I have to tell you, last year I mm-hmm. remember looking out my my front window and there was a uh, th- there were probably fifty cars mm. parked. Um, across the street, and mm-hmm. they were having a huge party, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, and, and so we've all kind of come to this point, I think, where we we are beginning to change our behavior, and the worry right now is on the rush to, 
to get beyond this uh, this epidemic and put it behind us, we're going to make another big mistake, uh, and we're going to uh, we're going to get out there too fast. We're going to take our masks off. We're not going to distance. We're going to be going out to restaurants. The real the real worry I think with public health people is that everybody's travel patterns are going to change again. So, so I, I agree with you. I think that politics certainly contributed to that. But I think this virus is smart enough to do it a lot of other ways mm. as well. Yeah, because I, so. I was sort of reminded of it actually over the past weekend when I was watching Trump's long speech at CPAC. And once again, I was horrified because there was, you know, hundreds, thousands of folks jammed into a room with zero social distancing. About 95 percent or more of them were not wearing masks. And it just brought, you know, last uh, fall back to me uh, in my head in watching that. Uh, Dr. Carl Krupp, is the ultimate hope here that this comes down to something no matter how many times we screw it up here, but that eventually it comes down to something like a general flu level pandemic i mean we do after all see anywhere from you know 30 to 30,000 to as high as 60,000 or so killed each year by the common flu virus will that be considered a victory here versus getting it down to zero infections and 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 zero deaths and so forth and does that mean by the way that like the flu vaccine we'll all have to figure out uh you know at least those in high risk groups you know how to get a novel coronavirus vaccine every year now as well. Yeah, I'm afraid you're right that it's not going to be novel anymore. Um, I, I, I think that our hope is that we can get this under control in a couple of years. Um, there, there are a couple of ponderables here. Um, we could, I mean, I, I think the big thing that many of us wonder about is whether the world community is going to get together and they're going to vaccinate across the world. Because if we're going to keep um, these variants down to a minimum and, and we don't really try to vaccinate everybody in the world, um, we're, in, we're going to be in a tough space every year because there's going to be a new variant, there's going to be a new problem we have to worry about. So that's on the side of of thinking ahead. And then the other thing we have to be prepared for is this is a changed world we're living in. Um, this is a world where we're going to see multiple pandemics. Mm. Um, on the plus side, um, we've developed this new mRNA uh, vaccine platform, mm -hmm. and that's really going to help us. Okay. On the downside, um, you know, Arizona is a good example. They did a um, you know, uh, a, the recent study on mask wearing mm -hmm. where they were just looking at data on the Internet. And Arizona is supposed to be the most uh, number of people that refuse to wear a, a mask. Mm. So we've got these yeah. social trends yeah. that are also working against us here. So it's a pretty, you know, muddled, uh, muddled world that we're living yeah. in right now. And 
you know, I'm not sure exactly what to say about that. I, you know, I hear you, and boy, do I hope you're wrong about all sorts of things you've mentioned here, uh, and uh, particularly that this won't be in control for another couple of years. Uh, Dr. Carl Krupp, let me ask you very quickly. I've got just a minute or two here. Uh, let me hit, uh, if I can, like three questions in a row. Uh, as I understand the early data on this, even people that have been vaccinated already can still become uh, infected and or at least carry the virus around with them to infect others that they have come in contact with uh, who may or may not have been vaccinated. Do you know, do, do we know yet if that's the case? No, we really don't. I mean, we're collecting data on that right now. Um, it's a really active interest. Um, my my suspicion is um, that people will probably, um, for the most part, be prevented from getting the infection. But until we collect enough data and enough time goes by, we're not going to know that for sure. Do those who have been vaccinated still need to be uh, wearing masks, for example, uh, still need to be cautious about either getting themselves sick or other people sick? Yeah, I think that's going to be, I mean, I would recommend it for, for people at least for a while until we get this pandemic under control. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think the big worry right now is variants. If we get, you know, if if the South African variant starts to circulate, we have seen reinfections. Mm-hmm. On the positive side, they haven't been as serious as the initial infections. Mm. Okay. So there are, there are positives here. I, I would say that uh, that we're going to go through the slow transition right now is the the case rates are too high you know we're dealing with a bunch of variants it's time to be cautious because you don't want to bring it home to your family well you know, it, i think I, that's the yeah i think i heard the smallest bit of good news there i think i'll take that uh and sort of related here and and i suspect that this is Likely completely unanswerable, but I'm going to ask it anyway, um, and okay. then I'm going to hold you to your answer. Uh, when, okay. when and how does all of this end? Will we be social distancing and wearing masks forever, or is there a real chance that things will actually return to where they were in the before times, before COVID-19? Um, and if so, when will that be? And as I said, please note, I'm going to hold you to this prediction. Okay. So, so the, on, the, on the first part of that, I, I think many of us are hopeful. We haven't seen the levels of vaccine hesitancy that we feared, really feared. And I'm really hopeful that towards, uh, I would say, sometime in fall, okay, I think things are really going to return to what appears to be normal. And I would be willing to bet you that there will be an awful lot of people, if you get on a plane, that are wearing masks. So some of our behaviors are going to change probably forever. Mm. Um, on the other hand, um, I, I'm I'm optimistic that that we're going to see um, we're going to get back to a, a place probably toward the end of this year when we can go out to a theater, or go out, get a pizza afterwards, and have a beer, and then you know, and not worry like we've worried to date. So those are. Those are my hopes as much as anything else, but mm-hmm. it, it all is going to turn on whether people accept that vaccination and whether we can really vaccinate most of Americans. 
I hope your your hopes are correct and your fears are totally wrong. Dr. Carl Krupp, he's a postdoctoral research associate at the uh, Health Promotion Sciences Department at University of Arizona's Zuckerman College of Public Health. You can follow their work on the Twitters at UAZ Public Health. Uh, Doctor, uh, great, great speaking. I, well, I'm putting in quotes. Great speaking with you today, uh, and I hope to do it again uh, in the uh, in the in the near future. Well, thanks, Brad. Um, I'm always willing to come back. So, and I hope that I'm as wrong as you hope that I am. So, <laughs> there you go. Thank you. We all hope you're wrong. Thanks, sir. Okay, quick break, and we're back with our closing few minutes on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Hey, this is Brad. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to counter the powerful corporate media echo chamber. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. Oh. We're that late, are we? <laughs> yes, we are. All right. <laughs> Sorry then we got to say. get out. Yeah, no, uh, not your fault. Certainly it was mine. Uh, but I'll tell you, um, talking to uh, Dr. Carl Krupp, hearing him say stuff like, we are screwing it up all over again. Uh, and if I heard him correctly, he said he thinks we may, we may be heading back even higher than this last peak? That, Did you hear that as well? That's what I understood him to say, so that's very uh, scary to me. So yes, please, everybody, keep please keep up with the social distancing and everything else that you should be doing. Just keep doing it. Boy, do I really hope he's wrong. I uh, he also said uh, that uh, he could see us being in control in a couple of years. Yeah. He said that, didn't he? Although yes. he did say sometime this fall, things could begin looking like normal. We will see. Like I say, I really hope he is wrong, and I take no joy in having that conversation, though I do recall last year around this time uh, warning people about what appeared to be coming before people were really willing to talk about it, and we tried to let people know, hey, get your supplies together, get ready. This is going to be a lot worse than people are telling you right now. Yes, embrace yourself for this for this to be a long haul, and it looks like it's going to be longer. So we so. do our best to tell the truth here, whether it's a pretty truth or not. Uh, we thank you for suffering through it along with <laughs> us. we got to go. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen. Of course, to my guest, Dr. Carl Krupp of the University of Arizona's Zuckerman College of Public Health. And to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. That is made possible by those of you who help keep our listener-sponsored, 100% listener-sponsored efforts on your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email if you like. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And on the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am simply the Brad Blog. That is it. Until we meet again, hopefully tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.